HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Tama Matsuoka Wong, who is a Harvard Law School graduate and former lawyer, and now is a photographer for top chefs in New York City, and author, speaker, to advocate sourcing, rediscovering, and creating the best in, the, in white food locally and sustainably harvested. Um, foraging is becoming increasingly popular lately in the U.S., and top chefs work with foragers to get the best ingredients from the nature to distinguish themselves. So we'll talk about Tama's dynamic career transformation and the importance of foraging and her fascinating clients and more. Hello, Tama. Welcome to Japan Eats. Thanks for having me, Akiko. So um, first of all, uh, let's talk about what the commercial foraging is. What is the definition? Well, I guess commercial foraging is when you're supplying something for money. You get paid to produce, to sell somebody some foraged item. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think, you know, say, 
20 years ago, mm-hmm. you know, I heard uh, some ships told me, like, this guy showed up suddenly and he has a bunch <laughs> of stuff. And I, I like this. I use it. So it doesn't sound like a continuous supply or something like, you know. Right. Well, I guess, you know, just the, the basic definition, the way I think about it is that, you know, foraging is something that's much broader than mm-hmm. just, you know, commercial foraging. So anyone can do foraging for themselves where they go and pick their own things in their backyard or whatever. Right. Um, but it's a completely different um, process and activity to engage in as a business, mm. you know, so to have business insurance, to be able to supply some reasonable consistency, et cetera, mm. and to right. determine the price. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big part. <laughs> right. And uh, so why do you think uh, foraging is becoming so popular nowadays among top chefs in the U.S. and uh, in other I mean, countries? I guess for me, the, what I think, I think the main thing is flavor. I think that they're looking for new flavors and textures, and I think that um, wild foods have this in abundance. Mm. Um, and in addition to that, of course, there's the whole trend from Noma, which is uh, a mm. restaurant that um, in said, Denmark in Denmark that basically um, encouraged all chefs uh, to know nature and to at least have experienced foraging mm. if they want to put nature on the plate. But in addition to that, it's a combination of old and new. So some chefs are doing this because their heritage and their mm. their traditions from around the world, this always. So right. it's a combination of old and new, I would think. Mm. But most of all, flavor. Right. So the, yeah, I think you're right. And then the Noma in Denmark, uh, the chef uh, René Redzepi, mm. he, um, I think the reason this uh, whole movement of Nordic cuisine uh, became popular is it's kind of like the opposite of uh, modern Spanish cuisine. It's I wouldn't say it's a negative term, the manipulated, you know, dishes, like <laughs> right. to, to, to push the envelopes. But mm-hmm. this one, Nordic cuisine, it's more like go back to the tradition, what people have been eating mm-hmm. traditionally, mm-hmm. and then naturally go back to the nature, which is in common with the foraging. So, yeah, and then I think nowadays the internet, everybody is connected, and then everybody's informed. You need to find something new. Right. Well, I think it's even, from what I can understand, it's even more than just finding something new. It's almost that it's, it's a knowledge as a chef that you are supposed to know. So in the past, it would be like you have to know how to make a Bernays sauce, or, mm. you know, anyone, like 101. So now it's at least you need to know the top 10 forged stuff or how to get them or what's a good, you, it needs to be part of your repertoire. Mm. Right. I think maybe it's related to like farmer's market booming because of local sustainable, mm-hmm. so preserving the nature. Right. Um Okay, so tell us about your background. So I heard you graduated uh, oh. <laughs> from uh, Harvard Law School and you worked as a couple of Tony. Yeah, so um, it's a very strange turn <laughs> to what I'm doing. But actually, everything I did before helps me with what I do today. Mm. Um, so I was in business world. It was, it was very enjoyable. I spent about 15 years overseas. Mm. And, um, I think it, it Tokyo, was, New York, and Hong Kong yes. for role. Law practice. Yes. Wow. Well, working actually in, inside a secu- uh, Wall Street firms. Wow. Um, so it's also a managerial type position. So, But you see a lot of, you know, it's very dynamic. Mm. And so a lot of what I'm doing now, I feel, is the kind of pace and the change and the creativity mm. and problem solving isn't really that different, amazingly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Right. So depending on you, just uh, dealing with uh, the concrete and the office rooms versus nature. I don't know which is more manageable, but there are so many ways. Well, but it's still this, the problems aren't that difficult. There's still people problems. There's situation problems. Mm. And you try and put together and come up with a structure that 
will will allow you to succeed and attain attain your goals. Mm. So, what is the point of the transformation? <laughs> because you know it's a it's completely hundred eighty so degrees. So, I guess the main the main point is that there really isn't like a point. Like, I didn't decide I was going to change this. It's just that. I'm at a certain age of my life that I felt like I had done a lot of what I had wanted to do in sort of my professional career. Mm. And this just kind of happened and took over. Um, and so why not go for it? Right. Like so that. what is that the moment? The, sorry? What moment uh, made you change that? Um, it was just sort of organically. It wasn't like a one day I woke up kind of thing. I mm. mean, a lot of it I think had to do with writing the book, the book that I wrote, Forge Flavor. So mm-hmm. in order to do that, I really couldn't work full-time right. in my other but job. Wait, but wait, you were working in uh, all those corporate environment, yes. like offices, and then you were foraging <laughs> at the same time? Oh, okay. So, um, yes, I was working in the corporate environment. And then, um, you know, I moved back to the United States um, from Hong Kong. Okay. And so when you've been... I was born here, but when you've been away for a long time, you look at it really differently. So when I came back, I just felt a connection again to like, I appreciated much, much more mm. like the sky and how much, you know, natural resources there are right. here. It sounds like you never moved back to Manhattan, but uh, where did <laughs> no, you I go? Didn't. So we moved back to, I moved to New Jersey in a rural environment, okay. right. um, partly because my youngest daughter had really bad allergies. And so mm. I started to think that even though I'd lived around the world and been to all these places, I started to think the new things that were really um, in short demand and the new luxury mm. is clean air um, and water. Oh, okay. So I wanted to live in a place that was like that. Right. So that you started foraging for your daughter too, for improving... But I, So I didn't start foraging for her. I mostly was started off from... Um, well, actually, I started off because I wasn't very good at gardening. I was like, I want to have a garden, and you know, maybe I can plant some kind of, you know, roses or mm-hmm. tomatoes. And everything I planted died. <laughs> <laughs> so it was more that I started looking at, like, well, what's growing there anyway? Mm. Um, if I don't have time, you know, what is there? And the more I started to understand the plants that grow around us naturally, mm. the more I started to appreciate them. And then um, there are a lot of people around me that uh, started to explain to me that all plants are the same and how they relate to the landscape. So I started mm. getting involved in it in that way. Okay. Yeah. So in other words, uh, you just gave up to control the, the whole garden. And yes. then the thing started to grow. That's how it happened. <laughs> right. So then I, I, instead of giving up, I started to you know, look, at it, look at it positively. What can you, you, know, what, what can you use these things for? Mm. So people call it weeds. So you... Yes. You decided to grow um, weeds in a way. So um, I actually wasn't thinking of it. Well, I, I was thinking the, the terminology that you usually use in the conservation um, community, which is who I was uh, working with a lot, mm-hmm. um, is native plants versus non-native plants. So mm-hmm. native plants are indigenous. They're connected to the, the diversity of the, land, the natural landscape. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of plants that come in and they disrupt things. And they're either invasive plants mm-hmm. or just, you know, regular old you know, right. non-native plants. And so I didn't think of them as weeds until I started to realize that people looked at all of them as weeds. Mm. And that was something that people could understand if you said, what's a weed right. as opposed to a native plant? Because it, it was just like people, everyone can say they've recognized a weed mm, or weeds. Right. <laughs> yeah. What is that? I don't want to say on the Japanese, but there is a really uh, disrupt, destructive uh, Japanese weed. That's the, what's the root? Um, there's like a crazy root. What is it? A uh, root? 
uh, like the plants, but it's, the roots goes down and completely uh, Is it take the over. Knotweed? Yeah. Itadori? <laughs> yeah, I think okay. so. Yes. Right. So that was actually the first, I had some on my place. Okay. And that was the first um, one that I was kind of battling because all these people around me told me that you need to get rid of this because mm. it's going to take over the roots. It'll <laughs> keep spreading and spreading and take over your whole house. And mm. so, um, it was kind of depressing, actually, because you know, you're, you're trying to get rid of something and every year it comes back more and more. Mm-hmm. And so actually how I first found out that it was edible was from these two Japanese professors mm. who came to visit us. And um, they felt really bad, sorry, that we that this plant was causing all this trouble mm. in, in, my, in New Jersey yeah. and other places in the world. But they said, you know, this is good to eat. In oh, Japan, right, when right, it's young. Right. So then I started to think, oh, it's like something I could do. I don't, you know, I don't feel like all my efforts are for nothing. Mm-hmm. I don't have to feel depressed. Right. So can you tell our listeners again what's the name of the the plan? Japanese knotweed. Knotweed. Okay, yeah. that's knotweed. That's like knot. <laughs> right. So okay, as far as it's young, it's edible and good for you. Yes. Right. Okay. And uh, and, and very I, popular now too. Oh wow! Yeah. So no more we like hated plants. This <laughs> was the educated people. It's still it's still somewhat hated, but at least you can use it for something. Right. Okay. And uh, so in two thousand nine, you started working as a professional forager. I think officially you incorporated. I would say that. Well, I say I incorporated, but I wouldn't say I was working as a professional forager. Oh, okay. Then. So I was really just working on this project where this is where I discovered that these things were edible mm. and I tried to look up these books about okay so what are, what can I do with this and most of the books the recipes in them were mm. not really good for my my family wouldn't like them like boil it three times to reduce <laughs> bitterness or something um, and even I found this Japanese foraging book that some my cousin had bought me from Japan and my father translated it for me mm. um, and all the recipes are exactly the same for every single <laughs> <laughs> or Hitachi or tempura or something right. like that. So I was like looking for more stuff, more recipes. And so, um, you know, that's where I started. I started, I brought some food into a restaurant, Restaurant Danielle. Oh, and, that's a Michelin uh, two-star yeah. uh, French D. French and they started, um, the chef de cuisine there, Eddie LaRue, started... Um, said he was really curious about all the stuff because mm. um, that's just like what he's interested in. Okay. And so he asked me to start bringing him things, but it was just like the project. He <coughs> actually, at the time he said he would pay me something. And I said, no, I don't want, mm. you know, I don't want you to pay me. I just want recipes. Right. Cause I was looking <coughs> for recipes for my family. Oh, okay. So you were just dining as a guest and then gave it to him. And then, yeah, well, some friends took us there. Oh, as okay. Guests. And then I met him later in the kitchen and he wanted more things. I had, you know, by that time I was a plant geek. I had cataloged <laughs> all the plants in my, <coughs> excuse me, in my place. And I had 225 plants. 225. Wow. So I started bringing him. He said, I said, what do you want me to bring? And he said, bring me everything. So we started this. We just called it the project. <laughs> the project. And then he would come in early. And I would bring, like, everything edible. Mm. And then he would start saying, like, try it all these ways. And then he'd think... He was looking for the time, like everything has a season. Mm. So when is a time when it's the the best time for culinary purposes? Right. So it's much more than just identifying a plant. Mm. It's like, how are you using it? Which parts? When is the peak? You know, for whatever use you're using for. Mm. So that was the project. That's what I was doing in 2009. Okay. So I wouldn't say I was a commercial forager. Yet. Oh, you okay. have to kind of learn learn the substance first. Right. But just uh, Eddie LaRue, that's really the top-notch chef. Is yeah, a so. great beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and 
Wow. I'm, I'm glad it's so strict in a way. Yeah, yeah. 
But that just shows you how, you know, the whole process. And then you have to keep records of everything. <laughs> and, you know, everything. So you have to be able to, you know, show it to the inspector and he looks at it and everything. So that it's a good way, I think, a discipline. Mm, a discipline. I'm glad you're a lawyer. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> it helps. You've had to know all those things. Right. Um, and how many different kinds of plants do you have in the area? Right. You mean that I'm yeah, selling? Yeah, you? That I'm selling. Wait, okay. Right? Yep. I would say 200. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And every year there's something new. Oh, really? Something new. Yeah. Right. And then um, it's a seasonally rotate. So. Oh, yeah. With, it's not, at any given time, maybe 15. Wow. Okay. So the, 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 the difficult thing from a commercial point of view, I think, is logistics. Because mm-hmm. unlike a farm where everything grows and, you know, you plant things and they all grow in these rows in this one area. Mm-hmm. If you're really, if you're foraging, which is really chasing nature season. Mm-hmm. These are free-range plants, right? They're growing where they want to grow, and they're going to grow in communities that are attuned to the kind of habitat that they need. So Mm. you have to chase them. Right. You know, I mean, there are certain things you can do on a small scale probably to increase it, but for the most part, the logistics is finding things from different places and then bringing it all together Mm. and delivering it. And that make you healthy too. You yes, have to chase them. Okay, that's yes. great. <laughs> right. And uh, by the way, in 2007, you were named Steward of the Year by the New Jersey Forest Service. So what is it? Oh, that was for my own property. Okay. Um, and, and that's actually, um, again, the, you know, not so different in some ways from the organic process in that you, you have to start with a plan. Mm-hmm. So here's this property. I've looked at it. This is my management plan. So you're actively engaged in managing your property. Mm. Um, and so if you have certain trees, you're, um, there are certain ways to increase the health of your forest. Mm-hmm. You have a plan to do that. You work with a, a, a forester. Right. And then um, mine plan um, at the time was somewhat unique because unlike a plan that would look at a single tree as a crop, right, mm-hmm. that you then harvest. Mine was more based on diversifying the species mm-hmm. in my place. Right. So and you're creating, uh, contributing to create a, more a kind diversity. of like an ecosystem. Yeah. So right. it was more about diversification and less about commoditization. Mm, nice. Okay. And uh, on your website, um, the uh, you say, our philosophy, we break down assumptions about what is ugly, what is useless, what is unwant- unwanted, and we gleaned unwanted weeds. We believe in the power of nature to heal, to feed, and to connect us with each other. So can you uh, elaborate on this statement? Um, yeah, so I think, I think that a lot of what I observe is that um, we have these preconceived notions in our head, but mm-hmm. this is good and this is bad. Right. And so we've decided we're trying to plant these things and control nature Whereas I actually feel like working with nature and taking what nature naturally wants to grow there mm. and managing it, but working with nature is actually more powerful. Mm. Right, because there's a reason for a certain plant to grow, this right environment. And, and I think, you know, people use the word sustainable a lot, just thrown mm. around a lot. I think that this is actually what is really meant by sustainable. Mm. So do you have an example of what kind of plants would contribute to, you know? Okay. So one example, and I did a Kickstarter about this. For okay. This. So this was, um, I started, I, and I've gotten into this concept of wild farming, which people think like, wait, farming and wild, isn't that two different things? <laughs> but it really, it really shouldn't be. Mm. So um, there was a, 
I have a lot of demand for sumac. That's one of the top. Is it American sumac? It's completely, it's very different in flavor profile. It's a different species from the Turk, the sumac you see in stores mm-hmm. most of the time. Right. So uh, all my clients love it. Mm. And it's, it's so much more superior in flavor wow. to the um, European sumac. Mm. It's less vinegary. It's more subtle. has cherry notes. It's really nice. Wow. Um, and the American Indians used to use it as a sumac aid. And it's mm. you know very healthy. It has a large amount of antioxidants, vitamin C. But so when you're really looking for sumac, though, mm. it's actually people think it's like a weed, but it's not as easy because we've cut down. We've cut down all these hedgerows where it would normally grow. Mm. And so the only places you can see a lot of it sometimes now are on the side of the highway, which is not, again, <laughs> a buffer. It's not a good buffer right. um, very against contamination. <laughs> yes. So... Um, so I actually saw this piece of land that is owned by a conservation group. And it's almost like a corridor that sits be- between a lawn, which is completely mowed grass, and a hayfield. Mm-hmm. So it's just like almost like a barren area, but it's between two adjoining forests. So mm-hmm. if that you reconnect that forest, you're reconnecting a wildlife corridor. Okay. And the kind of plant that would normally naturally grow there is sumac. Mm. So I did this Kickstarter. I've planted this kind of sumac farm. And we're taking data because there's a lot of things that people don't know. And, Mm. you know, it's a work in progress. But that would be an example of something, I think, that is restoring diversity. And at the same time, restoring the landscape plus providing an excellent product. Mm. I want to taste that. (laughs) (laughs) You should come. I I would love to. Um, Okay. And then, so what's the benefit of um, utilizing all those you know, the foraged items. The benefit for? You know, like, um, basically, we've been talking about unwanted weeds, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And then by eating them, what is the benefit? Well, I mean, on a small, you know, for yourself, I think it's 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 healthy and adding diversity to the, the foods that you eat. I mean, you know, a lot of what people are saying now is you need to eat more plants, mm-hmm. plant-based diet, um, and diversity of them. So this is, you know, probably some of the most healthy foods you can get. There has been a lot of information written on mm. that. So I think the benefit is first yourself. Right. Um, and then secondly, if we are picking this in a, you know, sustainable fashion, which is um, distinguishing between the invasive plants versus the native plants, et cetera, and the way that we're harvesting them, mm. then you're also benefiting the environment. Because mm. in a way you are um, stored. Yes. Right. Yes. For the, the yes. healthiest way, yes. the, the land yeah. demands this plan, not yes. this one. So you have to kind of correct it. And there's there's really fewer inputs. So in my, the sumac farm has no irrigation, no tilling, mm. um, no herbicides or pesticides. Right. Um, so, you know, it's mm. probably... So in other good. words, if it's native, probably you could go naturally organic, that kind of idea. Yes. Right. So, because if you think about... A lot of agriculture, a lot of it's all based on plants that are not indigenous to this country. Mm, right, it's fascinating. Like, you know, if you go to Highline, Highline plants are all native. I haven't seen most of them. Sumac is in there, actually. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, my listeners, don't go hunt it. <laughs> oh, yes. Nobody is allowed to pick from the Highline. It would not be. Um... Right. Um, okay, so the, you know, it's interesting that you said, you know, it's more nutritious to eat uh, mm-hmm. those weeds because it's more different kinds of vitamins, minerals, and uh, they've kind of other phytonutrients. Right. Yeah, there was a book that was written about this that I kind of like look at that book. It's called Eating on the Wild Side. Okay. Um, and it was actually, she was interviewed 
extensively, um, and she did a whole study on mm. studies that have been done on nutrition. Right. Okay, so it's proven. And uh, I watched your amazing TED Talk, TEDx Talk, called How Did I Less... Uh, how I did less and ate better, thanks to weeds. <laughs> so I really enjoyed it. So maybe you can talk about what it's about, what it's nice. Um, well, I guess the reason, you know, that um, that TEDx Manhattan asked me to be on that is because um, this whole, the TEDx Manhattan was all about food. And then TED is supposed to be about ideas worth spreading. Mm. And so a lot of, um, I mean, I talked about my journey here and why I think it's, you know, I feel very passionately about this because it's more than just identifying and picking things because it's cool, mm. even though it is fun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really um, impacts um, a lot of the challenges we have in our future, such mm-hmm. as we mentioned the health environment and our food. It impacts all those three things. And um, but at the same time, a lot of it's not that hard, you know, especially for yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not that hard because it just the start, how you can start is just changing the way you're thinking about things. Mm. So it sounds like uh, you're not just forging for chefs, but working with something a lot bigger, like uh, environmental, an activist kind That's of. That's where I, well, I don't know if I consider myself an activist, but definitely a steward. And I started from that perspective before I met any chefs. Mm. I didn't even know I was supposed to call them chef. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, what kind of other activities uh, do you, you see, do you write, I mean, we're going to talk about your book later, but okay. uh, do you talk other than TED Talk? Or what kind of? Yes, I, I do have, um, I do do um, lectures. I do, uh, I actually have an agent who, I'm on the Random House Speakers Bureau. Um, I am doing a series of workshops for the first time for the public. I don't normally do that most of the time because not that I don't love doing them, but I just don't have enough time in the way. <laughs> um, but I have agreed to do a series of workshops we can talk about later, mm. um, which I think will be, I'm very excited about. Okay. Um, because like, I think there's a joint thing between information mm. and also um, execution, you know, actually getting the things available to people. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, uh, the TED Talk, TEDx Talk was very fun. So I'm going to put the link uh, oh, on okay. the show page. <laughs> but if you, if you can give me some other links, I'll put it Okay. Up. Okay. Right. And uh, okay. So um, let's take a quick break here. And then when you come back, we'll talk about top chefs who use Thomas Forge products. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. 
Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Tama Matsuoka Wong, who is a former corporate attorney and now a forager for top chefs in New York City and author, speaker to advocate sourcing, rediscovering, and recreating the best in, in white food locally and sustainably harvested. So,、um, who are your chef clients for your foraged plants?、Um, well, of course, still Eddie LaRue at Restaurant、mm-hmm. Danielle,、um, also Cafe Baloo and Bar Playad.、Mm. Um, A Gern, which is Klaus Meyer's new、right. place. It's、um, the Nordic cuisine. Yes.、Right. And at the Food Hall as well.、Mm-hmm. Um, Gramercy Tavern and Untitled.、Mm. Um, Semilla in、mm-hmm. Brooklyn.、Um, Roberta's and Blanca.、Mm-hmm. Um, but also、um, some non chefs. Oh, so Gunter Seeger is new. Okay. That's、oh, amazing. Like a whole top kitchen <laughs> in the whole city.、Um, but also some non chefs. So Fresh Direct. Mm. Restrict is a really big、um, proponent of local and sustainable. They've、mm-hmm. come out like several times and they're just so supportive、right. for small, small producers、mm. like myself to help get our stuff out in front of people.、Right. Um, and also、um, a Brooklyn, Brooklyn uh, CSA、mm-hmm. called Next Door Organics. Okay.、Um, so I think there's,、um, there's, I mean, there's some things that I supply to、um, some. Chefs that, and, or、um, drinks that I wouldn't supply to them. So you have to think about which things are easier for、mm. a retail client versus. Okay. You know, yeah, I was going to ask because, you know, how,、well, how do you decide <laughs> what to pick for this chef and that、oh, chef? Okay. And <laughs>、um, so, I, I, well, one thing I would say is I don't really take on, I, I'm still very small and growing organically.、Um, so I really have to take on, cannot take on that many. Especially the way that I do things. So I'm really small and we do our own delivering. So that means I can only like maximum 20, maybe at the most clients,、mm. right? If I want to really keep the quality high and keep our relationship,、um, then I have to focus first and then slowly. And、mm. I wanted to get the. Get the、um, Right. That reminds、down. me when I went to Kyoto, like, you know, top farmers in Kyoto,、right. the top kaiseki、yes. restaurants, they fight for the farmer because. Really? Yeah, it's just like <laughs> they only have like 20. <laughs> Right. Yeah, because if you really want to take that much care, you、mm-hmm. know, and it's also very customized.、Right. So I know that certain people like this. So, when, so going back to your question about how do I pick things, it's, it's、um, when, if you have a relationship, you start to get to know about their particular cuisine.、Mm. And then you know、um, a lot of times、um, what, they're gonna, what they like, or over, sometimes it takes a year to actually know which things、mm. they like. So it, it takes a lot of、um, energy and time. And then Once you start to know, then, or if you know they're looking for something,、mm. then if I see that, I'm like, okay, I think that thing. So it's, <laughs> a, it's kind of a combination of maybe they're looking for something and then maybe I know what there is. And it's, it's really a creative process, which、mm. is really, really great. Right. Totally customized per. It's very customized. Right. And、uh, so, you know, how do you cli- your client chef deal with an erratic supply from the nature? Right? Because、um, So. I try to make it as l- less erratic as possible.、Mm. And again, it depends on the client. So, well, one thing that all, I think all chefs are doing now is there's a, they, they, they can always pickle and caper things、mm-hmm. to extend a season of something that's only got a really short.、Right. So, we talked about the knotweed.、Mm-hmm. So, pickling the knotweed is a really easy way to preserve, to preserve that and、right. keep that 
tart, great flavor for mm-hmm. much longer than the few weeks it's in season. Um, for me, I also have a kind of south to north run. Mm-hmm. So we're starting like two hours south of us. So it extends the season a little bit longer than mm. it would than normally. Right. Um, and then, um, you know, like I said, it's sort of chasing nature. So, I, I mean, I, I guess I'd say if, if I know that someone has put something on a named on a menu, mm. we'll do everything we can to make sure they can get that for at least, you know, the, the time that they would normally have something on a menu. Right. I mean, I just remember, you know, the, uh, at Samir is, uh, the chef, um, Jose Ramirez. Yeah, Jose, yes. Last summer, okay. I think he showed me, I happened to visit the restaurant and he showed okay. me, this is not weed. And I, so I just remembered it. It was he was so proud, and it only lasts a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then he was. I think that uh, shortage of supply even makes it even precious. Okay, right. Okay, good. Seasonality, seasonality is not three months, but uh, three weeks. So that's very precious. He's, he's very very supportive mm. of like small small you know producers and um their vegetable uh, forward or whatever it's restaurant, mm-hmm. and so they're always looking for new vegetable plant right. type things. Right, beautiful so courses of. If you go probably next week, there's an entire different kind of menu. <laughs> so, right. Um, so, how do you distinguish what is edible from not edible in your forest? Because they, they keep finding new things. Okay. Right? So first of all, back to my my lawyer's hat back on. So <laughs> I, you know, I'm never going to. Um, bring something that hasn't been documented mm. somewhere in human history as being consumed by humans, the part and, you know, whatever, the, the species. Mm. But you can tell from around the world because everyone uses the same Latin. Mm. So if you know the Latin species name you, and someone else in another country is using it, you know it's the same plant. Right. So you can prove it's edible. Or not. Yes. Right. <laughs> okay. And uh, so, you know, the, you may know certain plants but you bring in so many new things right so do you supply uh, plants with the recipes to to play with or just the flavor profile well most of the time they don't want you know a chef doesn't want a recipe right Right. because they want to play with so but it it can also be like um well definitely i might say raw or cooked right because some things are not really that digestible raw Mm. um it's better cooked so but i wouldn't give to go so far in detail as to give a recipe okay right so that's the whole point to it's right. like that creative canvas. Yes. Okay. And uh what's the big hit lately? Is there any popular plants among chefs lately? Um well right now since we're in season everybody's looking for berries, right? So there's wine berries mm. which are invasive. They actually are from Japan. Okay. <laughs> we are really crazy. Yeah. Very strong plants. Right. Um but, but again, you know, I, what I'd say for this year is that the weather has been really difficult. So it's been very dry. Mm. For, and then we only just got rain yesterday. So people are out this morning or now, as we're speaking, um, getting them. And they said, oh, it's really not as good as last year. Mm. Um, but we also have, I have a new property that I purchased on a farm loan. And we're having a, a very good blueberry season there, mm. um, which is there's like... Um, two kinds of blueberries and three kinds of huckleberries, which you wouldn't even know that are local. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Because, uh, and they don't mind dry at all. Oh, wow. So maybe the, the flavor is concentrated compared to regular. Yes, right? I think so. Right. It's not like a plant, huge packaged ones. Yeah. Right. Wow. Uh, so maybe you could give us an, an example of a dish that was cooked with uh, your products. Oh, well, I brought you something. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk about that. Yeah, Is that sure. What you mean? Okay, so this is a. I 
made myself from four ingredients. It's a okay. recipe in forged flavor. Not give me today. <laughs> so it's using anise hyssop, which I think is a really easy way for people to start because it's something that you can actually. It's it's indigenous. It can It's native originally in the wild, but now they've propagated in nurseries. Mm-hmm. You can buy seeds, and it's very garden worthy. Right. It's in the high line. Oh wow! And it attracts tons of pollinators mm. and butterflies. Right. So it's also a really good thing for your backyard habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, it tastes great. Okay. So this is an anise hyssop gazpacho. Okay. It only uses like four ingredients. Oh wow! And actually, it doesn't even require cooking. Okay. <laughs> so it's really easy. Right. Um, so you could try it later or whatever. I brought you some. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. And then any, maybe another example okay. by a chef or, you know, like. Uh, um, well, most of the time people are, po- a lot of people are posting things on Instagram. Okay. So I have an Ann Mandos and more Instagram and you can see like all the stuff that they're doing and mm-hmm. what they're calling it and what they're saying about the flavor. Okay. Right. I think what I found one uh, product that's by uh, Eddie LaRue. Yes. It's uh, a pochini mushroom and uh, I think a fluke, roasted fluke with uh, the uh, pine, pine, pine. Oh, the pine, the right, pine, pine needles. needles All right. Think. Yes. So that kind of thing, the pine needles, like food, think of it. I know. That's the French restaurant. Um, okay. So... Um, um, so if you, you suggest that we start maybe consuming no other plants or weeds, so what would you suggest as a starting point for us, like general consumers, like maybe okay. going to the Central Park? Or? No. So, <laughs> I don't, so first of all, it's illegal to forage in Central Park. Mm. Um, if it, it's just illegal. And it's a lot, a lot of state park places are illegal because they can't have tons of people running around taking things. Right. But also because if you talk to the Parks Department, they'll tell you that a lot of the places have a history of um, it's heavy industry. Mm. And so there's a lot of heavy metals and toxic substances right. in the soil. So you, if you just go around, and, and a lot of actually wild plants, ta- it's good because they take up a lot of those mm. metals, but it's not good for you to consume right. it then. <laughs> um, so you should, I would recommend um, in your own backyard or in your um, your friendly um, weekend retreat neighbor's mm-hmm. backyard, or have a little container garden that you have. You know, mm-hmm. if you're trying to plant tomatoes on your fire porch escape. or fire escape. Yeah, I'm illegal. <laughs> yeah, so then you see some, before you think of taking the weeds out of them, just take a second look and be like, wait, maybe that's something even better. Mm, <laughs> so yeah. somebody sent me something from Harlem. They sent me a picture. Um, on our website, we do have a plant ID forum. Mm-hmm. It's um, monitored actually by one of the best field botanists this side of the of the uh, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Carl Anderson. And so if you post a photo, he'll just tell you what it is. Really? You know, he may awesome. say, like, I can't see your photo. It's blurry or you don't have to show the whole plant. Mm-hmm. But if you can give a good photo, he can tell you what it is. Really? So someone from Harlem posted mm. a picture of their tomato plant and a container died and something else came up. Okay. And it turned out that it's one of the top 10 good things. Mm-hmm. Can it I was send a wild a... Uh, crest. Wait, can I put the link on the show page? Sure. Books? It's just Meadows and More. Okay. Yeah. Okay, sure. All right. And uh, so uh, let's see. I think you have uh, workshops that we can participate. Oh, yeah. So if people, I haven't tried this. I mean, I haven't really done this before for the public. Again, mostly because I'm, I just, I'm kind of flat out just trying to, to keep my business going. Mm. Um, but I um, am doing a workshop um, for Klaus Meyer's new um, org- his organization. He's moved now from Copenhagen to New York, mm-hmm. and um, Klaus Meyer is uh, the co-founder of Noma. Yes, right? and he's sort of a 
like a food entrepreneur. He's done, had all these books and TV shows. Right, and, and he just opened a food court in the yes, Grand Central food Station. And, but he also d- tried to make d- does thing more than just looking at it as a business. So he actually opened a um, a culinary school, and I think the the one of the worst sections in Brooklyn hmm. um, to help the community kind of reengage themselves and make their own food. Hmm. Um, so. Anyway, so so of course, a huge amount of the concept behind what they're doing is is getting back to the environment and real food and the people mm. being good for and you know, reinvigorating the community also. Right. So I we I decided to do this these series of workshops. I didn't want it to just be like I mean I'm sure that in your local place you can go around and find somebody who'll take you around and point out a hundred edible plants, mm. um, which is you know interesting. But I wanted to be something different. And more around this concept of stewardship that we were talking about mm. and about the landscape right. and what is actually happening in the landscape and at the same time eating amazing food. So mm. we're doing this series of workshops. Um, each will, Two of them will be in different places. The first, and it's, it goes around the menu at Agurn, which is their fine dining restaurant in Grand Central. Mm-hmm. Um, the first will be land and then sea. Mm-hmm. Then field and forest, wow. and so each will be different. And we'll talk about those landscapes, what's happening there, and the idea would have you come away with with that experience, um, looking at it differently than you ever did before. Mm. Um, and I think the reason that they wanted to do this was because, you know, you go to a restaurant and you eat, and it's fine. You have this meal, and then you go home, and it's like on to the next place, right? right. So they wanted to be something more like that. Where are we getting this? It's, it's more than we can just tell you in a five-second blurb. Like this is blah 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 from blah 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 farm mm, or something. Right. But here you can actually go see the stuff, learn about it, see why it's important, um, and taste it. And we'll give you some recipes too. Interesting. So that, yeah, wow. I'm, really, I'm very excited. I've had this cool. before. All right, so we can find information at uh, your website. That's uh, Meadow and More. That's Meadows and More. Meadows yes. and More. But I haven't posted it yet, but I will. Okay. <laughs> So maybe next week. Or? Uh, yes, and the, and then uh, there'll be a contact person at uh, to, for them to contact because it has to be through, it's going to be through their mm-hmm. organization. Okay, yeah. so post all the information on the show page. Okay, right. okay. So uh, well, we have a lot more talk, but uh, we're out of time. So okay. uh, yeah, thank you for joining us today, Tama. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you. So listeners, if you're interested in Tama's work again, it's uh, please visit uh, meadowsandmore.com. That's one word: meadowsandmore.com. And uh, if you have any questions or comments about the show, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. And you can sign up for our newsletter to get fun updates and event information at the bottom of our homepage. Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and the Stitcher podcast. And today's show was made possible by Corinne and our engineer is David Tatasiore. And thank you for listening. I'll next see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.